Hi, I'm Dr. Steve Elias, and welcome to The Vein Podcast. Respect the elders, embrace the new, and encourage the improbable and impractical without bias. Today, we're speaking with a young, energetic vascular surgeon who has some crazy ideas about developing a vascular meeting discussing arteries and veins. The meeting will last almost a week, involve hundreds of faculty, hundreds of industry, and thousands of attendees. I'm not sure if it'll really work, sounds a little nuts, but uh, let's see what our young surgeon thinks about all this. Our podcast guest today is Dr. Frank Veith. So Frank, how did this, I, it does sound a little crazy when you, when you think about it, when you say you're gonna like, people are gonna come for an entire week, we're gonna have people running all over the place, and you're gonna learn something. Take me back a little bit. What was the, uh, the, the origin? The origin of this, yeah. Yeah, the origin was that um, an elderly vascular surgeon, or young as you <laughs> want to look at, named Henry Hamavici. Yeah, I know him. Uh, yeah. was, was actually the chief of vascular at Montefiore when I went there. I went there as a transplant surgeon and vascular surgeon and general surgeon. It was 1967. Anyhow, Henry had this little meeting uh, at one of the old flea bag hotels in New York City in Manhattan. And he attracted about maybe he had 15 faculty uh, and there were less than 100 attendees. And he started it, I think, in the late 70s or maybe the early 80s, in the late 70s, I believe. And uh, he held a meeting for two or three years. Uh, and he got me involved in it when he had to leave for Mexico or someplace. So I, I played a little role in it, but not much. And then uh, I replaced him as the chief of vascular uh, and uh, basically took over the meeting. And over the years, it grew from this tiny meeting, maybe one or two days with 10 or 15 speakers uh, and less than 100 attendees. It grew gradually. Uh, for a couple of reasons. One is it was in New York, which is sort of the epicenter of the world. Right. Uh, easy to get to from all over the world, relatively easy, uh, attractive. Uh, and, and we did a couple of things that uh, really made a big difference. And, and I, I think it was largely good luck. But before anybody else, we embraced industry. Uh, industry before we started, was regarded as a poor sister, uh, a somewhat corrupt poor sister. Right. Uh, and we regarded them as our industry partners, as equals in, um, in educating all sorts of vascular specialists. So that was a unique thing uh, that attracted their support, which of course is necessary to bring a big faculty. The other thing that I was very fortunate about because we had people who wanted to speak uh, in abundance, I wanted to get them all in. And in order to do that, we couldn't have 10 or 15 minute talks, which was the tradition. Right. But we had to keep reducing the time for the talks so that they could just present the essence of what was new and exciting and different about their topic. And we ended up with five and six minute talks, sometimes even four and a half minute talks. And I got the idea from watching television where you'd have uh, uh, Henry Kissinger on a, a new show. Right, for and sure. And he would talk for 
maybe two or three minutes. Uh -huh. And then they'd say, well, that's very interesting, come back and et cetera. So we sort of borrowed that idea made for very short talks. And that way we could get a, a larger faculty in and we could get, uh, again, somewhat unlike other meetings, a uh, diversity of views. In other words, we wouldn't present one biased view of one speaker, we would present his biased view counteracted by a somewhat conflicting view. And that made for tension, what I call electricity, and attracted interest. And, and we phrased some of these things in, in the form of a sort of pseudo debate, right. where conflicting views could be expressed in the, the um, two or three views about a controversial subject and the audience could then make up their mind. So let me ask you, was it a, um, like a steady rise in growth or was there one or two years where it was kind of a, a tipping point that there was so much new stuff that happened, there was so much new technology that happened that it kind of pushed you to your next level? Well, yeah, but it was, it was really pretty steady growth. We went through all the hotels in New York City to our current hotel, which is the biggest, um, because the meeting was growing in size, it was growing in industry support, and clearly the endovascular revolution, which I basically embraced very early uh, and, and promoted uh, because of our work with Perotti and, and Ivar um, going back to 1992, we early on recognized, and, and part of it was due to my relationship with Barry Capson. Um, I had the good fortune when I was a very young guy, um, younger guy, and was president of the New York Cardiovascular Society. I invited Barry Katzen as a speaker to speak on, on uh, thrombolysis. And uh, he was just out of a fellowship. He gave this really stimulating talk, and, he re and that in a way helped his career, uh, and we became very good friends. And after that, he would invite me to his ICIT nice. meeting in, in Florida. And I would see what interventional radiologists were doing. And I, very early on, even though I wasn't doing endovascular procedures, I embraced them with our sick old limb salvage patients. And I recognized that contrary to what other surgeons thought, they worked. And, and we had daughter to our meeting in New York, and he was regarded as a crazy man. Crazy Charlie, but I realized that maybe he had something, and I had sent our radiologist out to spend a week with him and start coming back and doing angioplasty before balloon angioplasty. Yeah, just the mechanical, mechanical right. procedure. And our sick old limb salvage patients were spared a big operation, the orthobifemoral, right. and uh, and and the procedures worked. They didn't work perfectly, but they worked. So I was always an endo enthusiast, and very early on, I involved uh, radiologists and cardiologists in, later the meeting. in our meeting as, again, as equals, because I think they are innovative enough and contributing enough that aside from the turf issues, which all of us have, the, the educational experience was made better by, have, by including them. And because I went to Katzen's meeting, I could see what was going on and that got me even more interested in endovascular. And um, that's how we got involved with Perotti and, and the first EVARs and, uh, and other endovascular grafts. And as I got older, I was more in a leadership role with vascular surgery. And I 
right out of the box made that the theme that if vascular surgeons didn't embrace endovascular techniques, they were going to become you know, dinosaurs. No, and, I, and, and, and our meeting reflected that. Right. Your meeting reflected that. Um, the, the, obviously the, when did the, and I know you, when did the name, the name must have changed. Obviously when Jaime Vici was doing it, it wasn't called the Vici. No, no. So called, you'd have another name of current critical whatever. problems and vast, some but, ridiculous but name. You, the acronym, your, your name, obviously you have put between V E I T H. Part of it is endovascular. Yes. And, and I think that it's the second is, you know, the, kind of the second thing. In, in the uh, in the meeting, what what V itself stands for, and and I think, and at least in my mind, it kind of said that's the theme of this podcast is you know respect the elders, embrace the new, and encourage the improbable and impractical. And I think it is important for those people, which you just uh, illustrated, those people in areas of influence in whatever specialty, vascular, you know, veins, or not even the the medical world. Those people who are respected should not be dogmatic and pedantic, but as you say, it is the responsibility of the older people to encourage things of new people, even though it may sound crazy, because some of those things may turn out to be good, like you said. Right. I mean, your theme basically summarizes my attitude about professional life in general, uh, and but you say that the elderly should embrace these ideas. They don't. No. The bottom line is that um, the elderly, the so-called leaders of our specialty, even in vascular surgery, are just the opposite of what your theme right. and my thinking is. Uh, and in general, the responsibility of leaders, and especially, is to uh, promote and represent the needs of the specialty. But that's not what happens. Invariably, majority of the time, the leaders promote what is good for them as individuals. Uh, Self-aggrandizement, right. maintaining the status quo, rising in the world of prestige within surgery or radiology, whatever it is. And uh, it, it gets to one of my current themes, and that is that it's an imperfect world. And it's imperfect because human nature is imperfect. And, and so the, the idea um, of self-interest ruling most people's motivation is really not a good thing, but I think it's the way it is. It's part right. of the imperfect world, whether it's grasping for money, status, prestige, whatever, power. Um, and, and I gave a Holman's lecture a couple of years ago where I stated that surgery, medicine, is caught up in this imperfect world where uh, the lawyers don't care what they're suing is right yeah. or wrong. They just want the money. Businessmen want the money. The politicians are all in some way or another corrupt, even in the United States. They, they are guided by their donations and so forth. Of course. So, and, and in medicine, the imperfection is that uh, even the leaders of medicine the deans, the chairman of departments, the presidents of hospitals, they may talk about the quality of what's done in their institution, but they're really most of the time driven by dollars, right. RVUs, and DRGs. And, and money, unfortunately, in our society is, is far too 
important in determining behavior. Right, but I mean, in, in fairness to mankind. I it's mean, always I mean, been that way. That's right. So it's, so it's right. always- Absolutely, there's no yeah. question. I mean, wars start because of the egos, the false ego motivations of their leaders. Right. And, and it's tragic because if we, and, and look at our politics today, if we united as a country, we'd be so much better off than uh, this, this ridiculous grabbing for power. Um, so, but it's human nature. It's been that way since prehistoric times. So let's talk about being united in a way. And, and I want to ask you, obviously, I myself am a vascular surgeon. I haven't done an arterial case in, in 20 years. So clearly, there's the vein side of the, of the vascular world. When did it click in your head? Because clearly, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, you weren't talking much about veins at, at the meeting. I know you're going to say you did, but but it really has. When did it kind of? Did you say? Did you say, Jesus? I really want to like more than a couple of talks here. I mean, now you got a couple of days regarding venous disease. When when did it click, or what kind of made you think we got to do more veins? I, I think when I went to NYU after being terminated at Montefiore uh, because of my political activism good um, in medicine not in lay politics um, I I sort of got to know uh, Lowell Cabinet pretty well I knew Jose Almeida well in in 2001 when we were both stranded in Cancun Mexico during 9/11 um, and uh, I realized that uh, the treatment of venous disease and some of the newer techniques that were emerging with radiofrequency and laser for varicose veins and the idea of stenting some of the um, more actively treating with stents and other things, venous occlusive disease, I, I realized that was becoming a more important part of vascular surgery, even though I was only uh, peripherally engaged in it. And I thought if our meeting was going to expand and appeal to more vascular surgeons and other vascular specialists that we should make venous disease more prominent because it's, it's, you know, it's everywhere. Well, it's everywhere. It's definitely more ubiquitous than, than arterial disease for right. sure. Um, and so you probably, I think if I remember you start out with just a, a day or so at the most. Right. And then uh, it just kept growing. It kept growing. And, and Bo Ekloff was another guy who was a friend, we used to ski together with him and Russ Moore. Um, and he also uh, influenced me somewhat in, in stressing the importance of venous disease. And uh, it's not as, in some ways, it's not as exciting as arterial disease. You it's know, not life or death. It's, no. it's less life or death, but it's, it's well-being of patients. Right. And, uh, and we always treat it, I mean, in my practice, I'll treat it venous disease equally with uh, arterial disease, but I, I guess I was a little more conservative because it wasn't life or limb threatening. Right. Uh, and I did some venous surgery, but, but minimally. Um, and, uh, and yet I felt that that was going to be an emerging area. And particularly as and, uh, I was influenced by Raju, of course, right. uh, greatly. And, and some of his work where he really made a difference and, um, well, I think that that, is, that got me started. Yeah, and I think the the uh, the issue of of quality of life improvement now, 
both on the arterial and the venous side, and just in general in, in medical interventions, is really something that we are becoming so much more aware of. And so even I remember, you know, Life Fellowship, you're reading about patency rates of bypasses or whatever. No one spoke about, well, after you did the bypass, did the patient go back to their job? Were they able to take care of their spouse? Didn't, didn't even do that. So it was always like, okay, did we save the leg? Did we save the life? Yeah, but what happens later? Whereas with vein disease, quality of life is really in general paramount because you, if you, in general, if you do nothing about venous disease in a particular patient, nothing bad's gonna happen. It's not like they're gonna you know, wake up the next day dead. Um, but I think quality of life is, is a theme that insurers, Medicare, the journals with articles, um, should that be our primary outcome when we do any intervention, do you think? venous or arterial? Uh, I think it should be one of the primary outcomes. I mean, certainly with limb salvage, and I mean, I used to be criticized, why not just do a quick, easy amputation? Well, there are no quick, easy, major amputations. Maybe a young guy who loses his leg below the knee in the battlefield right. can, can be restored to a fairly normal, but an older person with arteriosclerosis, if they lose a leg, major amputation, either above or certainly above the knee and, and probably below the knee, they invariably do not regain an ambulatory status. So for me, the question of, is it worthwhile to do limb salvage procedures was a no brainer. Right. And yet I would be criticized, you know, I'm putting a patient through three or four stage procedures to end up with an amputation. Well, the bottom line is most of the procedures we did worked and saved the leg even if it was an imperfect limb with a few toes or transmetatarsal or even less of a foot, they could stay at home. They could be taken care of at home. They could transfer from bed to chair and or to wheelchair or whatever. And they were a lot better off with two legs than no than one leg and and even with one leg than no legs. Right. And and I and I think from the arterial side, you might take it relatively lightly, amputating one leg, but in general, you know, if one leg is going, they may wind up pretty soon with the second. 25% and end up with the second foot. And leg. that's the point you try and save the first leg because you don't want to- Well, again, going back to my early days, we, the standard treatment of all CLI, limb-threatening ischemia, gangrene or ulceration, or severe rest pain, was an amputation. and. Certainly, if a patient had one leg off, taking the second leg off was a no-brainer right. in terms of standard of care. And we felt that if a patient had one leg off already, that second leg was even more important to save because it allowed the patient to be taken care of at home and, and maybe transfer from bed to wheelchair, et cetera. So we went flat out to save everybody's leg, which was a, a complete... Uh, change of, of, of standard of care. And for years, I was treated as a, a crazy man. Right. Well, okay. Uh, you're not crazy. Um, but I think it does take someone or people to come up with ideas that don't make sense and buck the system and stick with it right. if they, because there's a learning curve to everything. So, when people say something new has come out, venous or arterial, oh, it doesn't work that well. 
you got to give it time. And so, of course, what you, what you were trying to do way back when to salvage a limb is like the, the prehistoric ages compared to what, what technology and techniques we have now. But if you don't start back in the prehistoric ages, you don't get to where you are now. Right. And um, in the vain world, I, I will just, and I wanted to have your feelings about this. And I was kind of there from the beginning as well in the, in the mid nineties and, and whatever Venus wise, again, at meetings or ideas, people were told like you were told from an material viewpoint, this will never work. Radio frequency laser. This is crazy. You have to open up the groin. You need to ligate all the branches. You need to do this. And for years, those in authority were putting down those that were, were coming up. And, and though that occurred, there still was progress and there continues to be progress. I do think though, and, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, in both the arterial and Venus side of things now, I think we have a little change in attitude. I, I think those people who are kind of in charge in the, the uh, key opinion leaders, et cetera, like, like you, it's not dismissive of anything new now. It's, it's a little more, hey, let's take a look. Am I wrong? I, I, yeah, I think you're wrong because- Tell me why I'm wrong. Uh, first of all, there's a little bit of what you say I agree with, but for example, we still advocate using PTFE graphs as bypasses to tibial arteries, which throughout the vascular world is regarded as a out of favor procedure, even though it was described by right, me yeah, in, right. I think, 1978. Right. Um, it's a no-no. And I can tell because my granddaughter is applying for zero and five mm -hmm. fellowships. She's working with one of my ex-trainees on pulling together our recent data on uh, PTFE tibials. And when she goes to interviews and mentions that that's what she's working on, she gets scoffed at as this is a ridiculous procedure. But it turns out that we have patients that have survived with patent PTFE tibial bypasses for 13 years, seven years. Obviously, no other procedure possible and they have limb salvage. And so we're collecting that data because we think even now, the standard of care is to dismiss that as a possible limb salvage procedure. And so I think there's still a, an element of resistance. Why are we able to get these long-term patencies with this far out procedure? Well, there's a way to do it right, and there's a way not to do it right. And there are certain little tricks that'll make it work, and if you don't use those tricks, it doesn't work. If you do a tibial anastomosis like you do an aortic anastomosis, it doesn't work. Right. If you do it with great care, et cetera, under certain conditions, it can work. And so I think there's, there's, a, there's a fadism in, in medicine and surgery. Um, that isn't always right, but that sort of most people think is right. I mean, one of the perfect examples, in situ bypasses as, as arterial procedures. Right. Used to be thought if you can't do an in situ bypass, you take the leg off. Well, that's obviously not true. It's not true now and that's accepted, but uh, there was a time when the fadism for 
in situ bypasses was controlling. So I, I think it, it goes back to human nature. Uh, there's always a resistance to change. And certainly with endovascular, the change was very threatening to people and therefore the resistance was really quite massive. Right, to the traditional open surgeon. Um, but as you said, I think we learned a lot from the interventional radiologists regarding that aspect. And let's, you embrace interventional radiologists and, and maybe even interventional cardiologists relatively early. Absolutely. But there still are issues in, in no many question. places, especially now. So, so originally vascular surgery was a vascular surgeon's domain. And then interventional radiologists kind of came into play. And now interventional cardiologists as well with the, with the um, minimally invasive, you know, percutaneous stuff. In the vein world, uh, it almost was the opposite in a way. In that vein disease, since most vascular surgeons, as we said, didn't think of it much as a sexy, life-threatening, you know, why am I wasting my time picking out varicose veins things. Many of the non-vascular surgeons, general surgeons, um, what, whatever, kind of came into the, the endovascular space in the vein side sooner yep. than vascular surgeons. Then vascular surgeons came along and, 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 and we're kind of dealing with it in a nice way. But we, we, meaning on the vein side, and we'll talk also on the artery side, we have issues with how do you train and how do you get good quality of care when people enter a specialty, vein care, for instance, from multi-specialty areas where they have been trained doing something else, uh, primary care, dermatology, general surgery, intervention care. How do you feel we can kind of get a standard that wherever you have come from, you need to enter that circle of vein care and show that you have the basics. That, that's a tough one, but the, the, there's, there's competition within medicine. There's no question about it. competition for patients, competition for dollars, competition for space in an institution. Competition is part of life. And when, when you talk about competition between specialists, that it's a reality uh, because Vascular lesions are fair game for just about anybody. Right. Okay. So putting aside that competitive nature, which was a big deal for me when I was in practice, um, from an educational point of view, I think there's tremendous value from having individuals from different disciplines all contributing to education. We're trying to do that with our meeting. Yeah, about a third of our faculty is non not vascular surgeons, they're either cardiologists, radiologists, or maybe even some neuroradiologists. Um, and um, from an educational point of view, I think there's great benefit from having multi-specialty education. And the same things that are valuable for a vascular surgeon to learn are valuable for a cardiologist doing non-cardiac vascular disease to learn or for interventional radiologists to learn. So we can, we can help each other by having a multi-specialty educational experience. And I think the multi-specialty idea can determine standards for practice as well. 
again, trying to get away from the bias and, and turf issues that influence the other side of our personality. Education should be multi-specialty. No, and, 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 and I think it is. It certainly is in your meeting and, and most meetings. And, you know, it's like as a vascular surgeon, you can say, as you said, some of your best friends are interventional radiologists, for instance. And as you get to know... And cardiologists. And cardiologists. And as you get to know people and, and realize that, in general, their goals were the same, just entering it from a different space. Doing a better job for the patient. Right. And, and, and that's what it's all about. Yeah. I mean, we can learn from cardiologists, and, and we, as you know, we have a union with, or are trying to have an alliance with TCT, which is a cardiology group, and meeting, because they can teach us stuff that make us better doctors. Radial axis, for example, the cardiologists yep. are pros with that for the heart and for the periphery as well. Uh, they have technology, wire technology, that, that we as vascular surgeons don't have. So... Joining with them in an educational effort may seem like um, traitorous behavior to other vascular surgeons, but it makes us as vascular surgeons better doctors, and hopefully it makes the cardiologists better doctors because they learn perhaps what not to do uh, yeah. from vascular surgeons who tend to be a little more conservative. So I, I think the cross-training is invaluable, and and... When I was at Montefiore, we learned a lot from our interventional radiologists because we didn't know much about catheter guide wire technology. And they, by making them partners with us, it wasn't an economic thing or financial thing. It was how to do the procedures better. And we learned from each other. No, I, and I agree wholeheartedly with you. Me and you both, having not grown up being trained in endovascular procedures, we either learned it on our own or learned it from our friends who were interventional radiologists or whatever, and then hopefully we were good enough and we, we got better on our own. But I, I think you're right. I think we need to know, recognize what each specialty brings to the care of a particular disease. And everybody, instead of putting those other people down, let's all you know, contribute together and learn from each other, as you say. And, and that's, what, that's what you're meeting. You have a huge number of interventional radiologists and, and, and cardiologists and, the, and there's certainly some neuroradiologists as well and neurosurgeons. So um, I think, yeah, the education is, is a good thing. Let's talk about abuse. Abuse in the vascular world, not in any other mm -hmm. world. Um, there is abuse of procedures by certain people. Lots of people, right. Of all specialties. Exactly. It's the nature of the beast, as you have said. First of all, I want to ask you, why, why do people do something that, that's not right? Or they're doing something that's you just feel it's being done for the wrong reasons. Why have we failed in training to emphasize this? Or is it just the nature and there's nothing we can do about it? Well, I think there's certainly something that could be done about it. But I think the, the tendency in America in general is to grow wealth, whether you're in Wall Street or uh, whatever. If you're a politician, um, you know, you make your children rich. There's a lot of imperfections in the world because human nature is imperfect. And I think in medicine, 
there's a tendency to do procedures and to rationalize the doing of them because they augment one's income. And I mean, that of course is driving a lot of the outpatient facilities because the amount of money that one can generate is, is great and because the uh, oversight in an outpatient facility is nil, but it goes on in, in major institutions as well. Preeminent major institutions right. a, where the head of the institution is telling the workers, the doctors, the providers, accumulate RVUs, get more patients into the hospital. And that, that uh, motivation comes from the highest level. So we know money is the root of all evil. That, well, it's, it's the, the root of much bad motivation. Most, much bad motivation. Um, so I have said, when we talk about the abuse in the vain world, if you stop paying people to do the wrong thing, they will stop doing the wrong thing. Absolutely. How do we implement that, that we can identify who's doing the wrong thing, and then we stop paying them? I, I don't have an answer. I, I think that, that medicine in general, even in the preeminent institutions in New York City, there are individual practitioners who publicly will do procedures as live cases at meetings, which are absurd. And everyone's saying they're out of their mind. No, and everyone's not saying they're, they're out of their not. mind. That's the problem. The uh, attendees who may be uneducated, I mean, I can recall going to a European meeting where a live case was uh, transmitted into the meeting from a New York City institution where a patient with an ejection fraction of 11% was intervened upon for intermittent claudication and multiple procedures were done. And nobody raised the question that this patient, why intervene on a claudicant who probably couldn't walk from her wheelchair to her bed. Yeah. Why do it? That wasn't the issue. It was all about the techniques, the technology, and probably industry was involved in supporting this. So, and, and so why didn't the institute, why doesn't the institution police the individuals? I mean, for example, why do some cardiologists intervene on the heart when there's no evidence that that intervention is beneficial. Well, let's and take, no, I, those are good questions. I don't know how to fix it. Well, okay, but let's take the, the T-car issue, which again, I'm peripherally not, know about it just because we happen to have- Trans-cervical carotid standing. Right. In order to do that, according to the company that has the technique, you need to be part of a registry, be part of the VQI. Do you think and that implies something when you're entering your data into a VQI in terms of your indications and stuff. I just, for those of you, this is not a video here, but uh, Frank is just kind of waving his hands around like I'm not well, going to Well, re registries are notoriously flawed. Oh, they're flawed, but do you feel that that's a, that's at a least part a way. step? Yeah, that's a rather step. Rather than saying, just do, do it and whatever you want to do, just do it. At, at least there is some modicum of oversight or, credi or, or uh, credibility, so to speak, when you need to enter a patient as a, into a registry to do a procedure? It's a start, but it's, a, it's, it's not 
a guaranteed solution because we know that registries in which the data is entered by the guy doing the procedure, bias does enter into, yeah. is it a stroke? Is it a TIA? Is it nothing? And again, when, when you have uh, a neurologist, objective third party evaluating neurologic changes after a procedure, they're far more adverse events than if the surgeon or radiologist, cardiologist doing the procedure is evaluating. And, so, and that's, that's human nature. All right, so you, so you, you already debunked my uh, registry. Uh, no, no, I haven't debunked it. It's better than nothing. <laughs> and if it's an audited registry, then it, it has some meaning. But, I mean, going back to Dr. DeBakey, we were talking about, I was talking to one of his trainees the other day, and if DeBakey or one of his partners had an adverse event rate, it had to be hidden from the chief. Well, you could get And, and that's the ultimate. Right. But you, you can know, get away a little bit more with that in the old days than, than now, a little more, but you still can get away with it. But it was, it was a joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if we had a bad result, we Just, didn't show it to the boss. Right, exactly. So he never know. didn't know about it. Everything was fine. Don't, don't upset the boss. Um, let me run this by you then. So certainly data, good data, helps us identify what is the right way Absolutely. to do something or not. In the vein side of things, what we have proposed is working with the insurers, societies, whomever work with the insurers, give the insurers what we feel is appropriate care of patients with a particular vein disease. And the insurers have the data as to who is billing for how many procedures, for instance. The simple, most simplistic thing is, you know, number of ablations of veins on the leg per patient. So from registry data and Medicare data and stuff, it kind of comes up with like 1.4 to 1.8 procedures per patient. We share that with, with the payers. And the payers can then go through their data and say, oh, Dr. X is routinely billing for 3.1 procedures. He may be correct in what he's doing. Maybe he's seen people with C6 disease, ulcer disease. But that person should at least be looked at because he's falling outside of one or two standard deviations. Do you think that's an idea that yeah, may that, fly? That, that's a start. Okay. Uh, at least it's admitting the problem and addressing it. But I can recall after I left Montefiore and went to NYU, I saw two patients in one day for second opinions about venous disease. And one was being advised they need a procedure by a vascular surgeon from Brooklyn. And the other was being advised they need a procedure by an interventional radiologist from New Jersey. And in both cases, the actual records which the patients brought falsified the yes, physical findings, the symptoms, and the duplex findings, which I repeated. And there was just imagine it was they were fraudulent, right? And so the procedures being advised, and one of the guys I know, one of the surgeons from from Brooklyn, not a well known vascular surgeon by the way, um, he was touting himself as doing hundreds of these procedures every year, and and here he was actually falsifying the records so that if you went through the record, 
you would think, and, and when I went through the record and read it, I thought this patient was probably gonna need something. I went to examine the patient and she had nothing. She had no varicosity, she had absolutely nothing. And obviously when behavior is sufficiently uh, duplicitous, no matter what system you use can yeah. be bypassed. And, and for example, when if you set up a standard with arterial disease that claudication shouldn't be intervened on unless it's very severe and, and, and job threatening and so forth, well, then the, the surgeon will say, well, the patient has rest pain yeah, because exactly. right. everybody has rest pain right. over 50 and right. maybe 50. under 50. So the, the idea of setting up a standard and all that, they, it's good. Uh, don't get me wrong, but they can be bypassed. No, and I agree with you. And this is the problem. It's more in the vein world than other places because the procedures are relatively simple to do. And harmless. And they're relatively harmless, like you say, relatively risk-free. And what's the worst thing that's going to happen? The patient may not get that much better. But this is an issue. And as you already alluded to, many, many vein procedures are being taken out of a hospital setting uh, whatever, where there's an oversight. Right. And here it's it's like, you know, free reign. I mean, just for your edification, it, it, we looked at the Medicare database and forget what year it was, but the person who was doing the most vein ablations, billing the most Medicare, gave as his specialty a ear, nose, and throat physician. Okay. That's upsetting. Yeah, or psychiatrist maybe. Right. Uh, <laughs> But you know, the, the, the problem, it goes even beyond specialists. I, again, I had many patients from the Bronx referred to me at NYU for second opinions. And I saw this patient who ha had been a patient of mine, who was seen by another vascular surgeon from the Bronx, a fairly senior, allegedly reputable guy. And he wanted to do a vein ablation on this sick old lady just because she had edema in her legs. And to me, it was it was criminal, and she was scheduled to be done. And do you think this? And this guy was a allegedly reputable full time employee of a major medical center. Okay, so let let me ask you: Was it? Do you think he was doing this because of lack of knowledge, or he knew better and he was doing it? The reason I say this is. I'm sure he knew better. So you think he did? He, he knew for you know, I, I'm, like I'm, I'm just, sure. I'm sure it was malignant motivation, but malignant motivation. I yeah. have not heard that term. Malignant. That's motivation. That's what it was. I mean, the guy wanted to make a buck. Okay. And the hospital, again, a major medical center, was employing him because he had quote such a big practice. We hope you enjoyed today's Vein Podcast in association with Radcliffe Vascular. We aim to bring you important topics from the vein world, either topics that we ourselves feel are important or you, our listeners, feel are important. So review us on your favorite podcast app or send your thoughts, comments, and questions to podcast at Radcliffe with an E-group.com. That's podcast at Radcliffe-group.com. You can also register to access newsletters, videos, and peer-reviewed journal articles. Thank you. Glad you listened. This is Dr. Steve Elias, and we'll see you on the next Bain podcast. Bain.